and greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. We have a special program today. We are joined on Zoom by Cameron Bertuzzi, better known as Capturing Christianity, though I'm really doubtful that his wife or kids call him Cap. I hope not, because that would be really weird, um, be very strange. Uh, I don't hear him at all. Rich, are we, we good on that? Um, I just unmuted myself. There we go. Okay, no problem. No problem. Uh, and he's cool enough to wear a backwards cap, uh, which means he's probably young enough to be younger than my youngest. So uh, back, in, back in my days, that, that meant uh, that you were like at the back of the class or something like that. But now it's just the opposite. So I, I don't know. I've not figured all these things out. I'm an old man. But um, Capturing Christianity, tell us, uh, for those in our audience that aren't familiar with you, uh, what is that all about and when did you get started? Yeah, so Capturing Christianity actually sprung as a response. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's it's really loud on my end. It's it's distorting a little bit. Oh. So it, it's, oh, okay, it's, sorry. It's, it sounds okay. like you're screaming, so I'm trying to get Rich to turn those things down. So. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. It's great to be here with you, James. I, I know that you've uh, you've done some shows about some of the things that I've done, and uh, it's just it's just great. I, it's I appreciate. The magnitude of this event, I think it's really cool that you invited me on and that we're able to do this. So I'll just tell you a little about my ministry, Capturing Christianity. So it started as actually as a, uh, or it stemmed from my brother becoming an atheist about 10 years ago at this point. And I had a conversation with him when I initially heard about it and the conversation did not go well. So after that point, I started to look into things a lot deeper. I wanted to really find out, is there good evidence for the truth of Christianity I came across guys like Wayne Lane Craig, uh, Josh Rasmussen eventually, but a lot of these guys, uh, they eventually became heroes of mine in the, you know, in the, in the, in the sense of like, they have these, uh, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. Let me just continue the story here. So, so I'm a little bit nervous. It's a little bit nervous to be on here with you, James, even though I can't see you anymore. Oh, but, yeah, so uh, so my story is I eventually found that there's all of this evidence for the truth of Christianity, and I eventually wanted to share that with people. And that's why I eventually started out capturing Christianity as a blog. I was starting to write little articles and stuff on different apologetics-related issues, and then eventually it turned into a YouTube channel. And so now we've got a YouTube channel, about 125,000 subscribers, I think, at this point. And that's basically that's the short story of how this all came about. Okay, and and tell me, uh, tell me a little bit if you could. Um, what about uh, your church background? Where uh, things church like that. Church background, very charismatic, very charismatic, and so that's that's something that I've kind of been, well, I want to say struggled with because when I started to learn about philosophy and apologetics and theology, I really realized how far away my background was was from that, like. The charismatic church was not, they didn't really appreciate theology at all. I went back recently, actually, to the church that I once attended, and the stuff that they were saying was crazy. It was crazy. And so that, but that's my background is is charismatic. And so at this point, I'm just still wading through the different theological issues. I don't really know where I sit on a lot of these things, as you've actually noted on your program. So, okay. So, so let me, let me ask you, um, because because I don't I don't know what the background is and um, so most charismatic churches I know of some exceptions but the way you described it doesn't sound like this would be an exception most charismatic churches and a lot of fundamentalist churches church history goes back to Billy Graham 
and with charismatic churches to some other, you know, um, well-known person 50 years ago. But the idea of a connection to the early church or even to the Reformation, uh, very, very unusual amongst those groups. Not a, not a lot of uh, self-awareness as to where our church is in relationship to other churches, history, things like that. Is that where you would, uh, where you would have been uh, as far oh, as you're bringing? Okay. Absolutely, 100%. Okay. Yeah, right. I, I don't even think I heard the name— Augustine until I actually started to look into things. Wow. Okay. All right. So when I, I don't remember, I don't remember the first thing that I saw with you. It, I don't remember if it, have you done anything on presuppositionalism? Had somebody on to talk about that? Richard, Richard Howe. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that, that, Richard Howe on to talk about was that, was that before or after the discussion with the Matt fellow, the Roman Catholic fellow by, by the name of Matt? Cause I, it's hard Matt for Fred. me. To, yeah. Yeah, I think it was before. So that one came out in 2019 or early 2020. Okay, I believe. All right. Okay, because I, I was trying to remember what was the first, uh, first thing that I'd run into yeah. from you. I'm not, I don't spend a whole lot of time on YouTube to be honest with you. If I see stuff, it's because somebody sends it to me. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm a pastor of a rather one of the pastors of a very, very active church. Um, you've probably heard of Apologia, but all the things that we're doing is just insane and do a lot of traveling and doing the dividing line and everything else. Uh, I, I, I'm dependent upon other people to send me stuff. And so maybe the first thing was the thing with, with how, but then when you had the discussion, if I recall correctly, it was primarily, at least I commented primarily on John chapter six. One of the things I said was, uh, this fellow doesn't know his background. He doesn't know why he is what he is. And one of the, th- one of the things that, that, that would prompt that from me is, at least in, in my background, in my days, if you're going to be doing uh, a min- uh, you know, ministry online or whatever it is we call it uh, today, that it's sort of important that you know where you stand because when, when I first started dealing, Mormonism is what got me into apologetics in 1982, about Six weeks after I got married, I was 19, she was 18, um, uh, I, I met with my first two Mormon missionaries in serious discussion, two times in one week, Elders Reed and Reese, and that's what eventually led to Alpha and Omega Ministries and going up to Salt Lake City every six months and debates up there and, and all the rest of that stuff and, and everything that Alpha and Omega has done since then, uh, starting very, very early. And one of the first things that I recognized was if I'm going to be criticizing where they're coming from, uh, their history of Joseph Smith, the Joseph Smith's false prophecies, uh, archaeology in the Book of Mormon, false prophecies in the Doctrine and Covenants, whatever, then they're going to be asking questions about where I'm coming from. Now, I'm a PK, so I was, I was raised a preacher's kid, and my dad went to Moody Bible Institute, and so I had a whole lot more than a lot of people did, but still, um, it was taking church history in seminary that just lit my fire and really gave me the opportunity of knowing where in the world we are in relationship to everything else. Thankfully, I had a really good church history professor. If I hadn't, who knows what I would have ended up doing or anything else. Um, but, you know, I've taught church history since 1990 now, and, and, I, and I love it. But I also know that I'm weird for that. Most, most Protestants have no earthly idea where in the world they're coming from. 
and hence are not Protestants of conviction. They're just Protestants of, well, that's what I am. That's, I don't know anything else. And so as I've been listening to the conversations that have been taking place, it's just been another example. It's not there's anything wrong with you. You just are very representative of a lot of people that just your, your, your background uh, has not provided you with a foundation for knowing why you are what you are. You are what you are by default, and therefore, when you run into new things, it's like, I've never heard of that before, and I have no earthly idea why I have not heard about it before, and I really don't know what to think about it. That's what I was hearing in your first conversation with Matt. Uh, am, am I wrong? No. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, fast forward. You've now been meeting with people uh, like. Um, well, can I can I say something about that? Sure. I, I think sure. I go ahead. Some, I, I think I have something that's relevant here. So, my mission with my uh, channel with Capturing Christianity is to have experts like you on the sh- on the channel. Like people who are actually ex- experts on the topics. So I, I come at this as a layman, and I, I let my audience know that up front. I'm I'm a layman. I'm not an expert, and that's but that's the point of the ministry is it's really to I mean the ultimate goal. Would, I would love to see my brother come back to Christ, but that's kind of why I do what I do. Is as a layman is I I don't have the degrees. I don't have the accolades. But what I can do is I can host an interview with an expert to get their ideas out to the public. So that's the vast majority of what I do on my channel. And yet so you're in some you're do you but you do have to have standards. I mean, you're not going to you're you're not going to present somebody as an expert who teaches at BYU, are you? I don't even know what BYU is. Brigham Young University, the premier LDS uh, school in Provo, Utah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So probably not. I pro- I pro- well, unless unless I was hosting a dialogue between right. someone from that university and like a Christian. That, that might be a case where I would have someone from, from that background on. Right. But, but you, so there is a, you have to have some type of general idea of what defines the Christian faith, and that gives you your guidelines as to who you're going to have on and in what context, whether it's going to be a debate yeah. or whether it's you're going to be presenting someone as, hey, this guy has really good positive stuff that you can trust and, and, and things like mm-hmm. that. Right. So, yeah. so that is an important aspect of things, and and I sort of assumed that uh, when you know I, I could be wrong in assuming that. Uh, you know, I mean, YouTube has has produced. You, you got to understand when I did my first debate with Jerry Matitix at Saint Cyprian's Catholic Church in Long Beach in August of 1990. Um, there was no internet, uh, despite what certain Democratic uh, runners for the presidency may say. Um, there was no internet and there was no social media. There was something called BBSs. I'm sure you've never heard of that before, a bulletin board system. Uh, it would take three days for your messages to get back and forth between people, but I was part wow. of it. I was, <laughs> it was, it was there. Uh, and it was, it was interesting and I put a lot of time into it, but anyway, there wasn't any of those types of things. And so if you were going to, uh, get out there and say something, you sort of had to build a foundation upon which to be able to do so. And now anybody, you know, can, can throw things out there. And so YouTube has changed everything. And so going back to the important uh, aspect of these things. So I listened to what you were saying in that first conversation. 
and I'm functioning on the idea. Which, which the one with, the one with, the one with Matt on John six and stuff like that. Uh, oh, and I, right. Well, yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, so the standard, uh, historically from the reformation and even beforehand, um, stuff about this is not being brought up and it's frustrating to me. Um, and so that's why I, that's why someone sent it to me and said, you need to listen to this. And it's like, okay, well, it wasn't brought up then. So we'll bring it up because we've got a pretty okay. decent audience. And so let's, let's respond to it. Let's, uh, let's talk about these things because I've been doing debates with Roman Catholics and we've been discussing John six since, since the nineties. And of course we're just the current generation doing it. Is this, this has been going on, um, for example, have you ever read uh, Calvin's uh, correspondence with Cardinal Sadaletto? No. Uh, highly recommend it to you. It is right at the time of the Reformation. Sadaletto was the Bishop of Geneva. Am got I kicked. Repeating that real quick. I'm already yeah, done. Yeah, Bishop Sadaletto. S. I think it's S A D O L E T O. I could be wrong about that, but Bishop Sadaletto. Um, it's classic uh, back and forth, right at the raw time when people are dying on both sides of the Reformation. Um, and is this related to the Eucharist? It it covers a bunch of stuff. Um, and the the point is that these conversations that we're having have been had over and over and over again, but the vast majority of both Protestants and Catholics today were not connected enough with our history to know what resources are already there. So we're reinventing the wheel over and over again. So, I think I mentioned uh, in my review, uh, and I'm not sure if you, I, I assume you you have listened you to... You've watched the video more recently than I have. <laughs> well, no, I'm sorry. I'm talking about, uh, now I'm talking about when I responded uh, to you uh, last week mm-hmm. and uh, when you were on Trinity Radio, okay? Mm-hmm. I mentioned a bunch of resources, uh, classic Protestant uh, works uh, such as Good... Whitaker, Salmon, uh, these are in-depth scholarly historical sources that deal with the claims of Rome, the papacy, the, the early succession lists, just all sorts of stuff like the Chemnitz, the, the, the Lutheran version of that. What is that? Three volumes? Something like that. They're, they're huge, massive resources. And yet um, you, you, you probably wouldn't have found them in a Christian bookstore when there were Christian bookstores, which was a really nice day when we had Christian bookstores. We don't have them anymore, but, um, but they're still, they're, they're difficult to find even online and, and, and things like that. And so these conversations have happened before. And when we try to re, you know, rebuild the wheel every generation, we don't necessarily do as well as the people before us, to be perfectly honest with you. And so there's a, there, that, if, there, if you've sensed any frustration, it's because, man, there's so much out there. And I'm not sure that you're hearing all the, all the sides and, and getting all the information. And even the direction that you're going with it, with the Bayesian analysis and, and so on and so forth, we need to get into that. Um, when you listened to my response last week, um, did you... To be fair... I'll just say I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to to most of it. So okay, I actually I missed the resource. Did you the resources list? Did you mention? Well, that at the very I, I end mentioned. Of the well, one of the things I said was I was sort of speaking to you, and I and I said so if 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 this is how we're doing things, because did you did you hear the discussion of Isaiah twenty two? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, one of the things I said was, okay, if, if this is functioning in this major way for you, um, have you looked at these multi-volume historical resources from the other side, such as Whitaker, Good, Chemnitz, Salmon? Uh, are, are any of those names even familiar to you? Um, most of them, no. Okay. Um, so I can. I am familiar. I, I am familiar, though, with the objections that you gave in the show. Okay, but so, or at least I've, I've I heard those from a, a guy named Gavin Ortland. Have you heard of him? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I he's have. he's been the guy who's like the well, him and another guy have been the two main people that I've been gleaning from in terms of their objections to this typological argument. Right. And so basically, what I had said was. What if there and I had I had held uh, I had held this bunch of photocopies that I had bound years and years ago, uh, patristic sources, stuff out of Minge and stuff like that, in regards to uh, papacy, Eucharistic subjects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, I had said, what if there's three pages in here that completely change all the calculations, but you've never seen them? And was raising the issue of, you know, these are the, the issue of the papacy is an issue of ultimate authority. Once you accept the validity of the of the papacy, all your calculations have to go from 92 percent to 100 percent. You understand that? I, I, I think that's false. OK, so so when the the Bishop of Rome, when when the Second Vatican Council identifies as perverse opinions, anything other than what they say, and that is that the Bishop of Rome is the infallible vicar of Christ on earth, and everything else is a perverse opinion. So you can only be 92 per... And then they anathematize even thinking opposite to that. Now, that, now again, you'll find, trust me, Roman Catholics today, especially in the United States, um, <laughs> uh, and especially with the Pope that we have today, I, I I personally don't think that Francis believes what Vatican I said. So that that's a that's a whole other issue that does need to be discussed. But when you read what was being written in 1870 by the people who defined these things, it's very clear exactly what they meant and exactly what the anathema meant. And I know today it's sort of like, well, you know, it just means you don't get to be in our club. That's not what it meant to them. And that's one of the issues is, is I don't even know how you could start plugging this kind of stuff into any kind of formula so as to have any meaningful impact upon making a decision about the claims of Rome, because history, history doesn't work that way. Uh, and it would require you personally to have more knowledge than any human being could ever possess in this life uh, because there's there's tons of stuff that I've read and then there's tons of stuff I haven't read. Um, so well, if, so Bayes, there may be a misunderstanding about what, what Bayes is. It's not like you don't have to consider everything in order to get a final analysis in the same way that, I mean, your objection to my methodology would, have, would apply to any methodology that you use. Because I think in every case, there's always going to be something that you could have read that would impact your probabilistic judgments, even if you don't use Bayes, if you use just 
abductive reasoning more generally, yep. I think that you're still going to run into that issue. So I'm not exactly sure, like, what is your objection here? Is it is it to Bayes or is it to, like, anyone coming to a final assessment of the papacy? It's a recognition that the claim of the papacy is absolutely ultimate, and therefore it cannot be a matter of, eh, okay, 92% is good enough. Rome doesn't say 92% is good enough. That's not what Vatican okay. I says. Now, you'll find, you'll find lots of folks who are saying, come on over. No, no, you don't have to. You can have disagreements. It's okay. Look at all the people that disagree today, and they don't get kicked out, so on and so forth. I, I get it. Um, but that's, that's, that's not what the people who wrote those words originally intended. And the point is, once you accept that ultimate epistemological uh, commitment, then all the other stuff is now going to follow through with that. So... Uh, bodily assumption of Mary. Now it's, uh, are you going to do a, you, you can't, once you accept the papacy, you can't do an, an analysis of the historical evidence of the bodily assumption of Mary, because that's now a given, given what you did before, right? Well, no, I think that's false because I don't think, I used to think this, I used to think that once you had the papacy, Catholicism just fell out of it. But it was actually a Protestant friend of mine that that showed me actually Catholicism doesn't necessarily follow if the papacy is true because it doesn't even entail that Linus was like the second pope. So it could be the case that the papacy is true, but then no one just fulfilled that role. And and that I think that actually depends on the way that we define the papacy, because if we define the papacy in a way that it doesn't entail that Linus is the second pope, then we don't actually get that line from Linus into the other popes. So I don't, I just don't think that the papacy entails Catholicism. I, I think that you can have, so what I would do is I would, I still think that that's like, you need to assess the probability of the assumption of Mary in your overall calculation of the probability of Catholicism. So I think that that would just go in a different place in the equation. It's not that it's irrelevant at all to the, so you don't, the probability so you don't, of Catholicism being you true. Don't, you don't see the authority of the papacy as being central in the definition of the oh yeah, no, assumption? I do. I, I think yeah, I think supremacy is one of the parts of of the papacy. And how would you define? See, you, you you've lost me now because um, I've debated the papacy with yeah. numerous Roman Catholic apologists, and none of them took your position. So um, I'm just trying to figure out what it means because uh, sure, I mean I can define the papacy for you the way okay. that I've defined it. So there's there's three different elements, and one of the elements I'm I'm. I was talking with a Catholic last night about, and he's kind of like, I don't know. Anyways, but I'll give you the three elements that I'm currently working with. So succession, infallibility, and supremacy. So those are the, different, the three different elements of the papacy. So if you have those three elements, you have the papacy. But I don't think you necessarily have Catholicism because that from those three elements, it doesn't entail that Linus was the second pope or that you know, all, on down the line that these people making these pronouncements or these claims uh, doesn't entail that those are actually true. I think it entails. I think if the papacy is true, then we do have like some really good reason to think that Catholicism would be true. But that's where additional evidence, like you said, the, the assumption of Mary. If you think that that's really improbable, that could be an argument against Catholicism later on. But it's not necessarily an argument against the papacy. Now, one of the things that I'm, I'm okay. You realize that once you become a Roman Catholic, you don't get to define these things. Rome does, right? Define what things? All of these things. Uh, so, in other words, the dogmatic 
writings of the church define what the papacy is and that it is of necessity directly connected to Peter as the first pope and the succession of authority through his successors. And you don't get to go, "Eh, you know, I'm not sure we can really do that. I mean, there's really good evidence that there wasn't a monarchical episcopate in Rome until 140. And, you know, you got the pornocracy, you got the Babylonian captivity of the church, um, you've got popes anathematizing other popes. You got Honorius, oh, good grief, for 400 years, every pope that took the chair of Peter had to anathematize Honorius as a heretic, as the Bishop of Rome. Uh, these are the things that made Cardinal Newman go, yeah, no, I don't think so, and hence developed the development hypothesis, which I haven't asked you about yet, but I, I need to. I mean, there's just so much here, but Rome is the one that gets to define what Roman Catholicism is. I mean, I sound like a, a real conservative Roman Catholic here, but you, the, the, <laughs> fact, the fact is, without, a, without, without those claims, there is no essence to Roman Catholicism. That's why there are a lot of people that have been looking at Francis going, this is a disaster, because he's, he's, he, he's who am I to judge? Well, we thought you were the infallible vicar of Christ. Uh, we're, we're confused here. I mean, I can, I can debate a conservative Roman Catholic that actually accepts the claims of Unum Sanctum or the Council of Trent or the Papal Syllabus of Errors or things like that, mm-hmm. because those are, those are objectively clear, definable, that the documents have a, historic, a history behind them, so on and so forth. I can't debate uh, liberal Roman Catholics. Uh, I did a debate on the, on the papacy back in 93 or four, I think it was 94, at Boston College, and I could just tell, looking Remember at... Remember who it was with? Well, the, I did two. I did, I did two debates uh, with Jerry Matatix, and then I did a, two, a two-on-two debate with Scott Butler and Robertson Jenis. And you By could the just... By would you be interested in, in doing a dialogue with Jimmy Aiken on my channel? Uh, depends on, on what the subject is. We, we tried to, to arrange debates on Sola Scriptura and things like that. I think the last time we had any conversation, I was like, let's talk, we need to talk about Francis and everything sort of died at that point, uh, because no one wants to talk about Francis. And I understand why I I wouldn't want to talk Mm -hmm. about Francis, especially when, uh, Jimmy Aiken and I were on the Bible Answer Man together. And that was during, uh, John Paul II. And if you want to talk about differences, (laughs) There they are. We can talk about the difference between John Paul II and, and Francis. But that's, that's he and I. Um, the, the, the point is, things have changed in the, in, the, in the current situation. And you can find Roman Catholics who are at Boston College. They don't believe anything. You'll find Roman Catholics at Boston College do not believe the bodily assumption of Mary is de fide dogma for anything in the world. Okay? But I'm simply saying... When it was defined in the middle of the last century, the people that defined it actually believed that it is de fide. It is by faith a part of the deposit of faith, and it must be believed, and they attached an anathema to it for a reason. And so, uh, you know, basically what I'm saying is I don't know what there is to convert to if you're not actually converting to Roman Catholicism that is a full-throated embracement of everything, that Rome actually teaches. Now, it may be a bad time to do it, because like I said, I don't think the Pope believes all that right now. 
I really don't. But <laughs> you know, uh, that's 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 one of the issues. So uh, I think if you accept the papacy, you're you're probably going to be a Catholic. I think that's I think that's true. A a, a Catholic. As in Boston College Catholic or a Catholic as in actually taking seriously the authority claims of the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church? The latter. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I would agree that it, 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 it follows. And that's why I said we don't get to define these things. Rome already has. And yeah, the, I'm actually using the Vatican One definition. And the Vatican One definition would include as a part of... Uh, what was that? Uh, Pastor Eter- uh, pa- no, Pastor Eternos. Yeah, Pastor Eternos specifically uh, identifies the giving of the privilege, the keys to Peter, as being separate from the other apostles and being in Where supremacy. Where is that in Vatican One? That's in Pastor Eternos. Um, I could actually probably have it uh, uh, in one of my documents here. I read yeah. it. Yeah, here it is. I mean, yeah, I, here it I, is. I, hear, I, I can I read it. Catholic. Do you want it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy and jurisdiction of the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter, the apostle by Christ the Lord. For it was to Simon alone, to whom he had already said, you shall be called Cephas, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Address these solemn words, Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, because flesh and blood is not revealed to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give to thee. And I just point out, stopping, doso is future. I will give, not I am giving. It doesn't point that out here. I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you shall bind on earth, so on and so forth. And it was, continuing the quote, and it was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief pastor and ruler over all his fold in these words, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, which, by the way, the early church never interpreted that way, at open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church, are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ, Lord, and his church, Deny that Peter, in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church and through the church on Peter as her minister, end quote. So, so is your is your point that Matthew 18 also gives the keys to the rest of the apostles? Is that where you would go next? Well, where I would go next would be, okay, given that Doso is future, then when did Peter receive these keys? And there's only two options. Either it's Matthew 18, and hence it's with all the other apostles in contradiction to Vatican I, Pastor Eternus, um, or Matthew didn't even record it for us. It was so unimportant that it doesn't even show up in the, in the scriptural record. Those are the only, only options you've got. The problem is this document claims that this understanding, this, this is a clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, quote, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church. Those are untrue words. They are not true words. And yet, these are the words that carry the anathema. And they are what you would have to submit yourself to, to be a self-consciously believing Roman Catholic. Now, <laughs> what percentage of Roman Catholics in the world have ever read Pastor Eternus? Mm, I don't know. 
uh, certainly less than 5%, I would assume. Okay? But you're talking about embracing something as having ultimate epistemological authority. And so you don't get to be, oh, I was just raised with it, I don't know. Uh, you're, you're going in it with your eyes open. So that's a, that's a different, I think that's a completely different situation. And so this is just one of the many issues. I mean, uh, the, the fact of the yeah, matter that, is, go ahead. That's actually a great segue, if you, if you don't mind. I wanted to, uh, one of my goals in our conversation today was, I, I, I mean, in line with my channel's goals, and I, I want to like have experts on and, and get their views and everything, it'd be great to like run through a list of your top objections to Catholicism. <laughs> um, actually, well, um, I really want to, most people want to hear from you, uh, and they want to hear us talking. We'll do that. Um, I had a sort of semi-viral uh, blog post a number of years ago in response to somebody who was converting, and it was my top 10 reasons uh, to question Roman Catholic Church. I'll send that to you, and, and maybe if Rich could look it up and maybe send me the um, link, um, I, I can provide it to you. But the the... The, the two things, we've already been touching on the first thing in regards to papacy, because that's what you were talking about on yeah. Trinity Radio, and, and that's what people are hearing, and, and that's what they want to know more about. Uh, I want to make sure that we really cover that, and then I, I do want to ask, uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask what your understanding now is and what it, what it was from your, from your church, or whether your church just didn't talk about it. Um, and that is in regards to the soteriological issue of your of how you have peace with God, because I, I know that, that a lot of charismatic churches aren't necessarily overly focused upon systematic theology and especially upon a particularly robust soteriology. And so I want I want to get to that. But l- let me just ask a, a couple other other issues. I ran through some things, and I, I just want to know if you have plugged these into your calculations. Um, did you uh, consider the rather strong evidence that exists right now that there was no monarchical episcopate in Rome for the first t- until about 140 AD. And, yep. and I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. And that, how, how can you, how can you avoid, well, I guess, can you avoid a subjective analysis of historical data in creating your probabilities. Well, can you? No, I'm asking you because I, I don't use statistical I just, analysis. I, I don't think anyone can. I, okay. I, I don't think anyone can. So you're assigning... Now, the system you're examining tells you as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church. So there is no, there is no opportunity for anything other than a 100% probability from Rome's perspective. So... If you're assigning anything less than that, you're actually in rebellion against Rome to do so. Just I thought I'd point that. In other words, your yeah, I, I, your your calculations once you step over that line have to have to change. You you can't you don't have the right any longer to have that subjectivity. Do you, do you, do you, you do you do you say that you still think you could that you could go against this and be a faithful Catholic? What do you mean by go against? So I, I would just take a different interpretation of it is known in every age. I, I would take an interpretation of like, like I mean, what? there's there's a way of talking like everybody knows this, but does it? It's not like everyone actually knows it. It's just like a saying. 
So that's kind of the way that I view this is that it's because it, they were they were aware this was written Vatican Vatican one was written what in the fifties so they're very aware of 1870. Oh, 18, completely wrong. 19, 19, completely. 1950 is about the assumption. Okay. Um, so it, it, they, they knew about the Protestants, and, and so I, it just strikes oh, me no, as no, like no, no, a, no, no. a charitable oh, okay. interpretation. Wait, wait, wait a minute. A char- I, don't think, I don't think they're talking about Protestants. It says, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church. So... Uh, trust me, uh, let, let, I'll, I'll at least give you the interpretation that has been uh, given to me by all the Roman Catholics I've debated on the papacy, which includes Mitch Pacwa and uh, and other people. Um, and by the way, I, if you've not heard my debates with Mitch, I highly recommend them to you. Mitch is a great guy, and the the thing that I loved about doing five debates with Mitch Pacwa is he never played games, he never pulled punches. He never engaged in cheap debating tricks. Um, they were just respectful, straightforward. Um, and there's a couple times where you'll just break out laughing because we all did, um, which was neat. Um, but uh, but anyways, it, I, I wish you could watch all of them. But the first two, though they were videotaped, we were never given the videotapes of them to, to make available. So that's a sad situation, but you can listen to them. Um, yeah, but so going I would, back to this question of like 100% certainty. So I, I, I'm not a infallibleist with respect to knowledge. I don't think that knowledge has to be 100% certain in order to constitute knowledge. Okay, but Rome, what Rome is claiming, um, what Rome is claiming is that it was known in every age by the that, Catholic Church. Is it has, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church. And what I was saying is, the, the claim that was made to me, well, I'll give you an example. Every time when I was, uh, when, when, uh, when Jerry Maddox and I were debating the early church and the Marian dogmas initially on Long Island, I kept bringing up people who contradicted what Rome is teaching. And he would say, well, that's not, that's not tradition. So when an early church father says something that Rome doesn't agree with, well, that's not tradition. But when they do, it is tradition. And so the idea being, well, you know, yeah, every patristic source we, we find that agrees with us, that's great. And we know there are patristic sources that disagree with us. That's just not tradition. So it's just, it's just dismissed by an anachronistic filter that's placed upon history by later generations that no one at the time of the writing could have ever even dreamed of. And so when they say, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church, th- that that in essence, requires you to remove um, Cyprian from the Catholic Church. Uh, That requires you to, if you've read the dispute about Sermon 131 and Augustine and Zosimus and Pelagius and the North African bishops, and the fact that that when when the Bishop of Rome told the North African bishops uh, to change course, the North African bishops told him, to go take a flying leap, and he did. Uh, they never, they didn't understand it that way. Cyprian didn't understand it that way. Tertullian didn't understand it that way. Uh, Ignatius didn't understand it that way. And so all of a sudden, they're not in the Catholic Church anymore, and yet they're claimed to be in the. Well, Tertullian, you know, dies a heretic later on, but uh, they're claimed to be in the Catholic Church. So it is this massive redefinition and rereading 
with a lens, an anachronistic lens. So you have to put this lens in front of your face, and then you look back and go, oh, we've always believed this, when in point of fact, that's not what history shows. It, it, doesn't, it shows it in all these different ways. Uh, uh, the, the, are you familiar with the sixth canon of the Council of Nicaea? Do you mind if we finish what we what we were originally discussing about the the known and every year? Because I, I thought yeah. you were saying, I thought you were saying that my Bayesian analysis like is flawed in some way because it was no. understood and known uh, in, well, every, in every age. I have I have to get to one hundred percent certainty in order for this to actually work. But I, I just right. can't mm-hmm. see why that would be the case. But the, the the point is that if your analysis gets you to ninety five percent, so okay. that you go. Okay, I accept that claim. To now accept that claim means to accept the words of the papacy. And now that means you have to switch from 95 to 100. Because it's saying it's perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ and Lord's Church, deny that Peter in his single person. What if, you, what if your analysis says, well, you know, actually... I'm, I agree with John Henry Cardinal Newman. This was the result of the development of doctrine over the ages, and the early church didn't believe this. It's clearly seen in the fact that when Irenaeus told Victor, the bishop of Rome, to cool his jets when Victor threatened to excommunicate the Eastern bishops over the Quartadecimon controversy, um, very clearly Irenaeus didn't believe that Victor was infallible or had the right to do this. He told him, cool your jets! You're, you're one bishop amongst many. And you can look at that, and it sounds like what you're telling me is, you can go, well, yeah, I can, I, can, uh, I can still recognize that. I don't have to change my views on that, but I can still accept the papacy as a generally valid concept. The papacy says, nope, we are, we are the final authority. There is no authority beyond, beyond the papacy. And therefore... All the calculations you come up with, if it's at 95, you automatically have to just go, I'm now at 100 because the, because the papacy says so. That's the, it's the ultimate authority. I, I just have to not worry about any, I don't have to worry about the donation of Constantine. I don't have to worry about the pseudo-Isidorian decretals. I don't have to worry about the Babylonian captivity of the church. Um, I can, all that stuff's gone. It just doesn't matter anymore. I, I I guess I just I'm not following the argument, and that that could be completely on me. I'm just not following how we go from papal authority to you've got to be 100 percent on this. Because the pope, the papal authority, is saying this is the this is the infallible vicar of Christ on earth. He is infallible in all of his teachings. And so when does it the, actually say that in Vatican One? That that's something I'm curious about. It, the infallibility part. Uh, we therefore, for the preservation of safekeeping, increase the Catholic flock with approval of the Sacred Council to judge it to be necessary to propose to the belief and acceptance of the faithful in accordance with the ancient constant faith of the universal church, the doctrine touching the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy, which is then continued on in its definition in what I read rather lengthily uh, about five or ten minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone, therefore, shall say that the blessed uh, Peter the Apostle was not appointed the Prince of the Apostles, and the visible head of the whole church militant, or at the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ, a primacy of honor only, and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema, 
And that continues. The Second Vatican Council continued that. In order that the episcopate itself might be one and undivided, he placed Blessed Peter over the other apostles, instituted in him a permanent, visible source and foundation of unity of faith and fellowship, and all this teaching about the institution, perpetuity, force, and reason of the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff, and his infallible teaching authority, the sacred synod again proposes to be firmly believed by all the faithful, end quote, Vatican II. Okay. So it's there. And all I'm all I'm saying is the Roman claim is 100%. Your your Bayesian analysis can only get you 95%, but the point is what's demanded of you to be firmly believed by all the faithful. If you want to be faithful is to accept the infallible teaching authority which then says we've always believed this and all the rest of that stuff that I've mentioned in passing, the Babylonian captivity of the church, where you have two popes anathematizing each other for quite some time, and they could never heal it themselves, by the way. Are you familiar with the Babylonian captivity? In the Old Testament? No. This is the Babylonian captivity of the church, which took place when, in the 14th century, the papacy moved from Rome to Avignon, France, and no, then, I'm, not familiar, I'm not familiar with this. Okay. The papacy moved to Avignon, France, and then after a period of time, there was a reform movement, and a counter to that was reestablished back in Rome, and for decades, you had two popes, and Europe divided up as to which of the two popes they would follow. The Council of Pisa, in the early 15th century, attempted to heal the, the schism, and only succeeded in electing a third pope. And so finally, it was the Council of Constance, around 1415, that met, deposed all three popes, and healed the papacy. That's the same, con- that's the same council that burned Jan Hus for believing in justification by faith alone, by the way, and Sola Scriptura. Um, but the point is, the papacy was not able to heal itself. It took a council to do so. And so for a brief period of time, there was the thought, maybe conciliarism is the way to go. Maybe it's ruled by councils. That didn't last very long. Uh, The papacy reasserted its absolute and ultimate authority uh, and has continued to do so ever since then. Um, How did they do that? With the Council of Constance? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. 1415. 1414 to 1415. And did the Council of Constance, did they like, they they made the new pope the, the Pope? Yes. Because you said there was three. Okay. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, so I would highly recommend taking a look at this, because yeah, if, the papacy, if, the papacy is, if the papacy is true, it's been true at all times, not just simply today. It has to have been mm-hmm. true in the past as well. And so you have the Babylonian captivity of the church. And earlier than that, the reason, I wasn't really changing topic, but when I asked you if you're familiar with Canon 6 of the Council of Nicaea, um, this is directly relevant. Let me read you what Canon 6 says. Now, just for okay. people watching and, and listening, most people familiar with the Council of Nicaea only know the creedal statement in regards to the Son being homoousius, not heterousius, not homoousius, but hetero, uh, homoousius with the Father. But all of these councils, whether it was Chalcedon or Nicaea or even the anti-Nicene councils that, like Sirmium, uh, which most people don't know anything about. Most people do not realize that the one man who stood 
for the Council of Nicaea during the Arian Ascendancy after the Council of Nicaea was Athanasius of Alexandria. The Bishop of Rome, Liberius, uh, gave in. He signed the, Sir, the Arianized Sirmium Creed. He gave in on the deity of Christ. The Bishop of Rome did, but Athanasius didn't, and he prevailed, but it took decades, and he didn't prevail by claiming to be anything other than a person faithful to the Scriptures, and he argued that way. But anyway, the Council of Nicaea also passed canons as, as well as its creed, and canon number six says, let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail, that the Bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the Bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and, and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges. And this is to be universally understood, that if anyone be made a bishop without the consent of the Metropolitan, the Great Synod has declared that such a man ought not to be a bishop, etc., etc. The point is, Canon 6 specifically identifies the Bishop of Alexandria as having jurisdiction in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis. Not the Bishop of Rome. He has, he has jurisdiction in the area of Italy, but not in Egypt. And the same thing is true of Antioch and the other provinces. Let the churches retain their privileges. There is no concept, the Council of Nicaea, of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. In fact, think about it. Why would you have the Council of Nicaea if anyone in those days believed the, the, what, what you're being asked to believe today, that the Bishop of Rome is the, is the infallible vicar of Christ on earth with teaching authority. They didn't go to the Bishop of Rome. Nobody thought you would. He only sent two representatives. The vast majority of the bishops of Nicaea, of the 318 bishops, came from the East. And those two, those two from Rome did not have any central role in the decision of the council. So, why? think about that. If... If at the beginning of the 4th century, the beliefs you are demanded to believe now by the Roman Catholic Church were true, there is no reason. Then. I'm sorry? Weren't believed then. What I was belie- finishing your sentence. Sorry. <laughs> you okay. No. You, do you see what I'm saying? In yeah, fact, yeah, in, in yeah. fact, this is an argument I've made many, many times. I have asked Roman Catholic friends, people I was debating, show me a single bishop at the Council of Nicaea, that believed dogmatically what you are to believe today dogmatically? And there's no way to answer that question, because mm-hmm. there's nobody that did. There is nobody at the Council of Nicaea that believed the bodily assumption of Mary was a dogma revealed by, by God. Not a one. And there was so no this, one... Is good. This, is, this is what I wanted from the show with you today, is to, to learn from you. That's ultimately what... And this is great. This is exactly... <laughs> Well, hopefully we can do more of this. Well, what I know you, you want to ask me questions, and you have some other goals. But well, well, well let me just let me just say, um, they may be older, but when we did debates back in the '90s with people like Mitch Paqua, Patrick Madrid, um, Robertson Jenis, uh, um, uh, Gary Machuda on the Apocrypha, and I know are all of these on YouTube. Yes, they are. Yes, okay. they are. And the difference, honestly, the difference back then with today, a lot of the debates we have today, you got a guy sitting there with a fan going behind him on YouTube. These, you had to travel, you had to fly, and you had months to prepare. 
And it's a completely different world now. It really, really is. I think there is a fundamental difference between the debates that you did back think, then and the debates you do today. I mean, you can do... I think that's super unfair. No, I, I, why? why? Why would that be unfair? Well, because... The, so the, the discussions that I've... And I'm... I'm I guess you're referring to me. Like, I don't. I no, don't no, 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 no. I was me. not. I was not referring to you. I'm simply talking about the okay. fact that during COVID, especially, we're all locked down, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. everybody is on YouTube, and they're, they they forget to turn the ceiling fan off above them, which drives, every, which makes everybody. Oh. Uh, and they're just. They just decided. I yeah, thought they, you were saying like I had a fan. No, 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 no. I wasn't saying. What I was saying is a lot of the debates that are going on now were scheduled the week before they happen. Okay. And that's not good because if you're going to really honor the audience and the topic, uh, for example, I've debated Bart Ehrman. Do you know who Bart Ehrman is? Yeah. Okay. You know how many months? Do you know? Do you know how many months I prepared to debate Bart Ehrman? I mean, aside from having taught Greek for decades and stuff like that, how many months specifically I spent preparing to debate Bart Ehrman? So I think it's different for everybody. It could be that you had already studied the topic enough to where you didn't need it, but like a no, refresher on it. Six months. So, but my guess, six months. I was about to. Yeah, I was going to guess some, somewhere around there. Six months for a formal I, for a formal debate where you're on stage. That seems that seems very reasonable. Exactly. I listened to his classes. I read his books. That's I think the best way to do these types of things. How much and, time do you think he spent on your on uh, preparing? None. For Absolutely, positively none. In <laughs> fact, in fact, you know you know how I can prove it. So you're really just talking about yourself now. Yes. Like, I do it this way. I show, do it this way. I believe I showed respect to him and my audience by preparing. He did not re- show agree. respect to me and my audience by not preparing. And I can prove he didn't prepare. You know how? Because he used the exact same slides he had used in his debate with Dan Wallace, including the same typographical errors that he had to apologize for the second time around. Hmm. So he hadn't even looked at them. He doesn't. Most of the people, most of the people, when I debated... Uh, John Shelby Spong on homosexuality. He did not bring a Bible to the debate, and the topic of the debate was, is homosexuality consistent with the Bible? He didn't bring a Bible. So th- this is, when I debate people like that, they don't, they don't invest a second. They really, really don't. So I was not in any way saying anything about you. I was yeah. simply saying, okay. we have done debates on the papacy that are very in-depth, and just because they were done in the 90s doesn't mean that the information is still not really relevant and really, really useful. So I'd, I'd highly recommend them to you. So, all right, there's so many of these things, Canon 6 and, and all, this, all the rest of this stuff, I, I would just so highly recommend to you taking the time to minimally read George Salmon's book, The Infallibility of the Church, I don't get the feeling that you've... Uh, how, much, how much interaction, real quick, have you had with John Henry Cardinal Newman so far? None. See, that concerns me as well, because the modern Roman Catholic apologetic, and, and its entire paradigm, has been determined by Newman. Uh, Newman was Newman, Newman, just really, really briefly. Newman. I know. I know who he was. I know okay. his story. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, it I would just be, haven't read his. I just haven't read his stuff. I've been yeah, focused it would be, on other stuff. But almost everybody you have been reading has been deeply influenced by him. Let's just put it that way. So I think okay. that's. I think that just. 
I think you can see why it'd be very, very important to look at what happened with him with Vatican I, his opposition to papal infallibility, and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. Now, with all that said, and looking at the clock, I'm sorry, what? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, Rich Rich did get me the, uh, the top 10... The top 10 reasons not to join the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I'll just... Oh, the, the blog post? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I will... Um, yeah, it's from you August... Just, t- tweet it to me or message me on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I, it's from August... Uh, wow. <laughs> August 20th of 2007. Here, I just thought it was just a few years ago. Once you get my age, everything feels like it was just a few years ago, actually. It's just sort of how that works. So I just sent it to you, DM in, uh, in, in Twitter. Nice. Now, nice. okay, let's... Because we want to try to keep the, this to a length to where people are going to be willing to want to listen to all of it and, and, and things like that. And I'm also getting pretty hungry. I didn't eat lunch. Yeah, and you, <laughs> and you said you had to pick up kids, too. So, um, yeah. so real quick, uh, I don't know whether you heard it, uh, but when I responded to you, one of the things that I said, I'm not sure. The is, man? Um, well, yes, uh, that's, that is a... That is, vitally a key issue since you heard it uh then you you know what i'm talking about here in regards to the imputed righteousness of christ i realize in a lot of charismatic churches that's not um necessarily a part of the regular preaching i can assure you, you know that what it, i wish i could do i wish i could take you with me to the church that i used to attend that would be amazing what church well are you attending a church right it. now Okay. I am. Yeah, it's it's a non-denominational church, but it's it's a lot better. It's a lot better. When you say when say better, you mean uh, uh, a clearer ministry follows, of the word. Oh yes, yes. He he reminds me of Tim Keller, my uh, my pastor. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, how all is right. that? How is that on your scale of like? Uh, where, where does he fit in? Tim Keller. Yeah. Well, th- th- that's. That would lead us way off into uh, okay, sorry. other stuff that is different. Um, <laughs> there's still some issues to talk about there. But since you, since you, since you raised it, the blessed man, um, I play, did, you, did you see my conversation with Peter Stravinskas on that? No. Okay. Sorry. I, I played I'm going to say it. no to a lot of stuff. <laughs> that, that's fine. Um, I watched... Uh, in fact, I will I will haunt you in your dreams if you do not start Please watching don't. the debates that I've done with Roman Catholics for 20, 30 years. Um, you, you will never sleep again. But I did um, watch your debate with with Ehrman. I did watch that one, and I thought that was really good. Okay, well, but that's very different. That's that's oh yeah, that's yeah, history. That's text criticism. criticism stuff like that. You've got to watch the debate that I did with Father Peter Stravinskas. You, you, uh, it's on Purgatory. You would think, eh, eh. That was one of the most revealing debates that I've ever done. 2001, um, listen to the cross-examination, and then come back to me and say, uh, yeah, okay, d- l- let me know. But I asked him, and I played this in my review of your... Of your co- uh, you, you must have missed this part. I played... My question, questioning of him, are you the blessed man of Romans 4, 8? His first response was, the blessed man is Jesus. Mm. And I'm like, so Jesus is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin? His sin? Uh, and he realized, nah, that doesn't really work too well. And so 
I gave him a second shot at it, and his the only thing he came up with is, I hope to be the blessed man. Okay. And, and so my question for you to think about, not necessarily answer, but to think about. Okay. Is, is just this. I do not believe that within the Roman Catholic system, as defined by the dogmatic teachings of the Church, not by someone teaching at Boston College today or something like that, but as defined by Trent and uh, Vatican II and Vatican I, and even by the Universal Catholic Catechism, for that matter, um, that Roman Catholicism can answer the question, who is the blessed man of Romans 4.8? Because in Roman Catholicism... If you commit a venial sin, it is imputed to you, and you bear the temporal punishment for the venial sin. If you commit a mortal sin, it's imputed to you, and you have to be re-justified the sacrament of penance. So there is no non-imputation of sin within Roman Catholicism. It just doesn't exist, because there is no positive imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It's called a legal fiction by Roman Catholic apologists and by Roman Catholic theology. And so... There is no answer to Romans 4.8. But my question to you is, how... The, the, let, 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 make it a statement. The Don't only, forget, I'm still Protestant. The only reason not to be a Catholic in the West today is if you recognize that you are, in fact, the blessed man, and that your sins have been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to you. And therefore, to leave that glorious hope for the penitential system and sacramental system of Roman Catholicism is the one thing that I will never, ever, ever be able to understand on the part of someone who makes that move. What if they just said that justification is just about that, about righteousness, being righteous in the sight of God, but then sanctification is, is just a separate story? Well, the problem is, in, Ro- in classic Roman Catholic theology, the two are confounded with one another. Are you, fa- got, well, are you familiar with... To... Well, okay, read Trent, read the people at the time, yeah. recognize that, they're, that, that the Lutheran Concord and all the rest of that kind of stuff is not dogmatic, by the way, but is talking about other things. But keep this in mind, really quick. Are you familiar with Luther's dunghill anal- uh, analogy? No. Oh, come on, man! What were you doing on every Reformation Sunday? I mean, uh, you, you didn't, you never dressed up like Martin Luther or anything like that. I mean, what, what have you been oh, doing? Well, okay, for your first, of all, <laughs> first of all, I can't grow a beard. <laughs> all if right. I could grow a beard, I'd have one. Okay, all right. And I would look cooler than you. Uh, well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> any, anybody, anybody's going to look cooler than me. I'm, I'm, I'm an old fat Scotsman, but. Okay, I don't have time to, to redo it. We'll have to revisit this, um, okay. and, and we will. But I, I do very much want to encourage you to recognize that history, the teaching of Scripture, these cannot be analyzed in a statistical fashion. Okay? I, I, I encourage you to continue your studies, but I also encourage you to recognize that the things that you're studying absolutely um, defy being put into any type of a calculation. There, there's, there's, there's way too much uh, of the human aspect 
to be put into the history. And the other thing is, there's way too much, we haven't even talked about this, but we need to talk about the issue of Scripture and Scriptural authority and what is Theonoustos and what is not. And um, so, like I said, uh, take the time to listen to the debate I did with Mitch Packwell. Watch that one because it's available on YouTube. And see if you can't hear why that's a big area that we need to be addressing uh, as well. Fair Sound enough. Fair? Sound fair? I'll take your, yeah, I'll take your, I mean, I'm, I'm taking it very, very seriously. I mean, I'm, I've been taking notes today, so. Now, was that as I'm bad as you this. expected it to be? As bad? I didn't, well. <laughs> Come on. You, you can be honest I with me. No, because I, so my goal, again, when I came into this conversation was to learn from you. So I figured if like, if you understood that, then it, it wasn't going to be like a, a big issue. Yeah, there well, wasn't going to be any fireworks or anything like. So, and that was my that was literally my only goal going into this is I wanted to learn from you, and I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to to have me on the show. I was at the Tim Stratton debate. I don't know if you saw me. I was there. I was no, I there didn't. in person. I yeah, didn't. and there was the line to talk to you. Uh, believe me. They, I know <laughs> it wrapped around the whole building and like into the county. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And I even walked in there one day. I walked in there just like trying to see if I could catch your glance and it just didn't happen. Sorry. But Sorry. I just, no, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I, I, I wish, I wish you had just uh, waved or something and uh, I would have, I would have uh, definitely uh, greeted you, but um, I do try to stay around afterwards and greet people for as long as I possibly can, which sometimes can be, Absolutely, possibly Hours. exhausting, but it's uh, it's always enjoyable to do. So I appreciate yeah. that. So anyway, all right. Well, thank you very much uh, for for joining us. I, I get the feeling we'll probably get a chance to do something like this uh, again in the future. I think it uh, was useful, hopefully for you. Um, if you if there's anything you've jotted down that that is unclear to you or something like that, I, I want to be able to direct you to the resources. Um, uh, so that you can make sure to, to get the best material you can and, and make wise decisions. So, uh, Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. All right. God bless. Thank you. See ya. All right. Well, that was fast moving. I cannot, I, I cannot imagine that anyone uh, was at all uh, bored uh, <laughs> during that conversation. Uh, let me just look over here at... Uh, at, at Twitter, I don't, uh, I don't see, I, I see nothing, uh, not a single comment. Of course, I didn't invite people to comment in Twitter, but I did. I saw absolutely no discussion what they're going there whatsoever, but I'm not searching on capturing Christianity either. So maybe something to pull up there, but no one's mentioning it to me. Uh, but hopefully j- just one thing. Um, the only stuff I had, the only thing I had in front of me today was I, because I had read it when I did the review, is I had an open document that uh, contained the quotations from Pastor Eternus, Vatican I, and the quote from Vatican II. Uh, over here, like I said, I never opened this, and I, I was going to ask if he had seen John R. Page's What Will Dr. Newman Do? But he said he hadn't gotten to Newman yet, so that would sort of be somewhat secondary at that point. Um, but all, all of that was from debates from 20 years ago, which are still vitally important today, um, and from the fact that um, 
uh, I'll be teaching early church history at Grace Bible Theological Seminary the last weekend in September. It actually goes through October 1st. I think Saturday is October 1st. Um, and I've just taught this stuff for ages. Um, there's just so much that needs to be looked at to have a full-orbed picture of the claims that Rome makes and, and issues related to it. So hopefully that, would, that was useful to folks and also helps you to understand the importance of um, Sola Scriptura. And before we wrap up, you haven't started music or anything, have you? Good. Let me, uh, let me show you something. You know what I'm going to do, don't you? That's as big as I can get. Uh, this picture was sent to me uh, about two hours ago. And you have here uh, reading Job with St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, we have the, the Summa of the Summa. And... Uh, we, we, we've got a book by, uh, we've got Levering in here. Um, notice what it says. It says, sword and trowel staff recommendations. If you look in the background, you can see some t-shirts hanging there. Five of the ten books on this display are written by Roman Catholics. Where is this display? Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary Bookstore. Now, last um, last December, I think, I pointed out that I was seeing a a lot of recommendations by Reformed Baptists of books by Roman Catholics. And one of the rather childish responses to that was that whenever anybody reads something by a Roman Catholic, oh, that's papism! I have, obviously, uh, tons and tons of books in my library by Roman Catholics, and not just uh, books that are on Roman Catholic theology. I've got a very healthy Roman Catholic theology section, obviously. But on other subjects as well. Roman Catholics can be wonderful historians. Um, they can be wonderful philosophers. But the fact of the matter is, a Roman Catholic, if he or she is truly a Roman Catholic, and this came up in the conversation, is a person with an ultimate authority, an ultimate epistemological authority. In fact, that's, that's one of the things that they say to promote their system. Remember Patrick Madrid years and years ago. What's the, what is the blueprint for anarchy? Sola Scriptura. Because the teaching magisterium of the church gives you this uniformity. This uniformity, you see. And this consistency. Great advantage to it, isn't there? And the problem is that the, the people in these books that, we're looking, that I was showing you there, the, the people in these books are writing books specifically on the great tradition and classical theism 
I'm reading a book right now by Dr. Craig Carter. And he says that you should read right along with his book, a book by Borsma called Scripture as Real Presence. Um, these individuals are promoting an understanding of Scripture that is not compatible in any way, shape, or form with any kind of Protestant, let alone Reformed Baptist, or Reformed at all, understanding of Scripture. It's not possible. And yet here, at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, five of the ten books on display. I think this was today. At the bookstore. (laughs) We'll see how long that display stays up, huh? (laughs) Uh, But five of the ten by Roman Catholics. On subjects where I simply have to ask, don't we have anything good on that? It is not, oh, we can't read Roman Catholics. It's you need to recognize the fundamental compromise that they have made in regards to the nature of Scripture. That they have to make. You don't understand Roman Catholicism. You don't understand it. Sorry. Some of you Reformed Baptists, you don't get it. And you're not going to get it until it's your students that are swimming the Tiber. And that's, and then it's too late. And I've tried to warn you, and you will not listen. You will not listen. You just listened to an hour's worth of why these things are important. And they are. And they are. All righty. Well, um... There is so much to be talking about, and we, we will get to it. Um, but I want to thank uh, everybody who made that possible, but uh, especially Cameron. He said he was a little nervous. I understand why. I, I, I just wish you all would, would, would recognize I am just, and Rich will tell you, I am, I am just the most lovable, warm, fuzzy bear in the world. <laughs> Sorry. He couldn't, he couldn't keep a straight face. He said I, with a straight I face. I couldn't either. <laughs> just, just, ask, just ask Summer. I, I, I still think, I like to tell the story when she was being interviewed a couple of years ago. Someone asked her in one word, describe what it was like to be raised by, J- by James White. And her answer was hilarious. Hilarious. Because we had a lot of fun. And, and I can have a lot of fun. I'm, I'm not that. But you get me into a debate and I've got a job to do. And I do the job. That's, that's, people think that's what I'm always like. Thankfully, I'm not like Jerry Maddox. Jerry Maddox is like that. He never stops debating if we met right now, he'd pick up right where we last left off with whatever debate it was we were doing. He'd have a Diet Coke in his hand, uh, but other than that, he just... he. 
Yep, yep. I I know, I know. Um, but I'm not like that. Um, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna drive a little out of town and and do a a, a bike ride I haven't done in a long time up a seven thousand foot mountain. And um, I'm, but I'm gonna be studying all the way driving out, all the way driving back while I'm riding. I'm gonna be listening to books because. We do the dividing line, and that's why you listen. Thanks for listening to the program today. Lord willing, we'll see you on Thursday. God bless.